0: What is the relationship between pain and non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short? Are individuals who self-injure less sensitive to pain than those who don't self-injure? Does engaging in NSSI lead to habituation of pain and lower sensitivity to pain over time? And if so, what happens if they stop self-injuring? Would pain sensitivity normalize or would the person remain habituated to pain forever? Do people who self-injure like pain? What are the ethics involved in conducting research on pain? After all, a lot of that research would require the researchers to purposely inflict pain on participants in order to measure differences. To answer these questions and to talk about how researchers safely and ethically inflict pain on volunteer subjects when conducting research, I am joined today from Cologne, Germany, by Dr. Julian Koenig. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply i In episode 35, back in March of this year, I interviewed Dr. Michael Kess about the neurobiology of self injury, where we talked about NSSI in the two most important stress response systems the autonomic nervous system, where we discussed the parasympathetic branch and the vagus nerve, and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis, where we discussed the role of cortisol. But I intentionally waited to talk about pain. As you'll hear, there's a lot to talk about. You may want to go back and listen to the Neurobiology of Self-Injury episode to get greater clarity in today's conversation, which also includes some technical terms like affect, which refers to facial expressions and gestures that typically accompany an emotion, and nociceptive, which is a fancy way of saying something has to do with a perception or a sensation of pain. Dr. Julian Koenig is Associate Professor of Biological Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Cologne in Germany. Research at his lab focuses on treatment-resistant, rare, and emergent psychiatric disorders in children and adolescents. Dr. Koenig aims to develop new treatment approaches in youth psychiatry, gather clinical evidence for their efficacy and safety, and apply this research to clinical care. Dr. Koenig is editor of European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, affiliate editor of the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, and on the editorial board of other journals in the field like psychosomatic medicine and psychophysiology. He has published more than 250 scientific articles and was recipient of the Herman Eminhaus Award for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry in 2022. He has received many other prestigious awards and we are fortunate to have him on the podcast. Thank you for being a part of the podcast, Dr. Koenig.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: So we had done a recent episode about the neurobiology of self-injury, and I intentionally set the pain part of it aside because I wanted to interview you specifically about the psychology of self-injury pain. And as before we get into that, though, I am always interested in hearing how people got into the field to begin with. How did you become interested in researching self-injury and especially pain related to self-injury?
1: Thank you so much for that question. I think it's been now 10 years ago. So back in 2013, I was, you know, putting final touches on my uh, doctoral dissertation that was a clinical study in patients with chronic pain. I was really interested in chronic pain back then, but soon enough realized that clinical research on chronic pain takes ages and is really cost expensive. So you put a lot of money and a lot of resources in one project, and after three years, you get to publish one paper from it. So soon enough, I turned my attention to more lab-based experimental pain research. And uh, one of the first studies I did was developing a new method to induce or refining an existing method, the cold pressure task, to induce thermal cold pain in subjects. So I built a large aquarium tank with cold water, keeping everything constant and published a paper on this. And Michael Kess heard about this apparatus I was building. And as we both were based in Heidelberg, he came over to get to know my apparatus and the protocol I used. And he said, hey... COMP used that to study self-injury in adolescents? and I said, hey, yes, uh, let's do that. And it's kind of the start of a, yeah, I'd say a long-term friendship and scientific collaboration we both had for the past 10 years using not only this, but uh, many methods of experimental pain research in adolescents, engaging in NSSI.
0: That is fascinating. And didn't you present on this in Heidelberg at ISSS in 2015?
1: I think in 2015 I presented on our meta analysis on the on the topic. I'm happy to send you paper so maybe you can link those. Also showing some uh, interesting pictures of our cold pressure task, and maybe you remember those because I think those were shown at another presentation back at the IFOplus meeting in Heidelberg. Yeah.
0: Yes, please do send those, and I do believe I recall seeing those pictures and I do want to ask some questions related to some of these experimental designs, like the cold pressure task
1: absolutely, as
0: well as the ethics behind it right right but before we do that i I think it's really important for us to all get on the same page, our listeners, to understand the concept of pain because in a way, it seems pretty straightforward, but when you're researching it, it's actually pretty complex, so Can you briefly describe the different terms that are often used in reference to pain? For example, what is pain sensitivity and how does this differ from pain intensity, pain threshold, pain tolerance, and pain endurance?
1: Yeah, happy, happy to do that. So these are all terms used in experimental pain research to quantify the individual experience of the lab-based stimulus. So we're not talking about clinical pain research here. Pain sensitivity is somewhat used as an umbrella term, and then pain sensitivity, so how sensitive an individual is towards a pain stimulus, can be defined in different ways. And it largely depends on the methods you use to induce the nociceptive sensation. Just for the sake of ease and uh, simplicity, let's stick to thermal pain induction. So either using a hot or a cold stimulus. When using a hot or cold stimulus, we can think about different ways of using it in the lab. Either using a stimulus with a fixed temperature, and within our design, the time of explanation to the stimulus would be manipulated. Or we can use a stimulus of varying intensity, so different degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit, for example. To then define pain sensitivity of a given individual, let's say we use hot pain, we could induce a hot pain stimulus that will steadily increase in temperature. And the pain threshold would be the temperature at which an individual perceives the stimulus as painful. The pain tolerance would be the maximum temperature one individual can tolerate. And pain endurance would simply be subtracting these temperatures. Another way to think about it would be to use a fixed stimulus. So let's say you use a painful temperature of shortly above 40 degrees Celsius that most people experience as painful. And then you would stop the time a given person can tolerate the stimulus that is set as this fixed intensity. So you can measure pain tolerance this way. And when using the fixed stimulus, you can also measure individual differences in pain intensity. So how intense an individual would rate the same temperature on a scale, let's say from zero to 10, and then you can compare this. So these terms differ in their applicability depending on the method used to induce the nociceptive sensation. But generally speaking, pain sensitivity is the umbrella term. Pain threshold is the given intensity of the stimulus at which it's perceived as painful. Pain tolerance is the time of a fixed stimulus that I can endure it. Or when you change the temperature, the maximum intensity of that stimulus. And pain intensity could be a rating for fixed stimulus, Let's say on a visual analog scale from zero to 10 or zero to 100, as uh, frequently done.
0: Related to this, a common question that people often have about self injury is Do individuals who self injure have a higher tolerance for pain? Are they less sensitive to pain overall and simply have a higher pain threshold than others and maybe even more willing to endure higher thresholds of pain?
1: Great question. Short answer is, from all the evidence that we've reviewed and all the studies we know, yes, they differ in their pain sensitivity. So we did a large-scale meta-analysis of all the existing studies out there that have been published. All case-control studies, so comparing individuals engaging in self-injurious behavior against healthy controls, so individuals with no lifetime history of self-injury, And for all the constructs previously discussed, so pain threshold, pain tolerance and pain intensity, we found medium to large effects indicating that those engaging in self-injury have a higher pain threshold, higher pain tolerance and would rate uh, given stimulus as less intense compared to healthy controls. In particular, in this meta-analysis, we included all kinds of individuals engaging in self-injury. So those with borderline personality disorder and those with non-suicidal self-injury. And we even found differences between these groups, suggesting that those with borderline personality disorder are even less sensitive to pain compared to those engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. Generally speaking we have to keep in mind, these are case control studies. So comparing mean pain sensitivity in one group against mean pain sensitivity in the other group. And we need to acknowledge that also in healthy subjects, there are huge inter-individual differences in pain sensitivity, right? So your pain threshold may differ from mine. And we need to acknowledge that this is probably also the case in individuals engaging in self-injurious behavior, right? There may be some with like, extreme high pain sensitivity, not compared to healthy controls, but still within their group. And there may be those with less pain sensitivity. But I think we're going to get in all these details later and all the complexities when studying pain, there are also huge intra-individual differences. So pain sensitivity, although they are trait components, although it's quite, let's say, robust and stable within a given individual, it may differ from day to day.
0: I'm thinking about this subjective experience of pain, because I think this is pretty much what we're always talking about when we're trying to really measure it. So if I rate something as an 8 on a scale of 0 to 10, and it's the same temperature, but someone else rates it as a 10, does that mean I have a higher threshold of pain? Or does that just mean that maybe the other person is just simply more sensitive?
1: Right. And what's the difference between that, Right. So I think that's kind of the uh, specificity when it comes to pain, not only in the, let's say, lab-based experimental sense, but also when it comes to clinical pain, right? I think it's one of the very last human experiences we are able to really Objectively measure. There's no way to do it, right? So still in the clinical setting, we work with these pain scales from zero to 10 or any visualization of the painful experience. And we can't compare the painful experience in one individual against the other. In the lab, though, where we induce pain, you know, we use the stimulus or we use constant stimulus or manipulate the stimulus. And then assessing different individuals so we can come to some conclusions concerning how two different individuals experience the same stimulus. And that's why it's so important to really have uh, solid methods within your lab when inducing nociceptive sensations in individuals. You might want to make sure that what you measure are really individual differences and not differences by design.
0: Great point. So I've had a couple of shoulder surgeries that resulted in of course I had to do physical therapy afterward and every once in a while it's been a while but every once in a while I'll do deep tissue sports massage to work in the scar tissue and to work in that and I remember when I first did that it was excruciating and now whenever I get those massages it hurts but I can tolerate it much better than before right and so now sometimes I feel like I have a higher pain threshold than mm. maybe someone else because if I got a right re- I've never had a regular massage so if I were to get that, would it even feel like I'm getting, it may not even be relaxing because there's no pain and it's not getting deeper into the muscle. So sometimes I, I wonder in this case, someone who self-injures, is this just how they are biologically before self-injuring or does this tolerance for pain develop over time through repeated self-injurious episodes?
1: We don't know for sure, but before we get into this in more detail, let's talk about your, your case example. Yeah. <laughs> certainly. You know, there are different aspects of pain processing, an affective component, a cognitive component, and so on. And there may be aspects of habituation towards the same painful experiences, like in the case of your shoulder. But more likely, and that's also an interesting aspect when it comes to early development, you have learned on a cognitive level that the pain you experience during this massages is for a good reason, right? True. It's like the pain we experience during medical examinations. You know, there's a certain age in children when they grow up where they learn that pain, although it's always a warning signal, may be more useful in some instances than the other. Because on a cognitive level, you know, uh, when you're getting a flu shot, it will hurt for a second, but, you know, it will have long-lasting, enduring effects that may be worth the pain, right? So in your case, with the shoulder, there may be both. Habituation and this cognitive aspect. Still, I would question that you became less sensitive to pain in general, because there may be other pain modalities or other situations that may be very painful for you. Although, you know, when it comes to your shoulder, you don't have the same experience than, I don't know, a couple of months ago. Interesting thing, by the way, about our meta-analysis, we found this effect independent of the modality of pain. So mechanical pain, thermal pain, Chemical pain, electrical pain, subjects engaging in self-injury always are less sensitive to pain. Now, back to your question concerning the temporal resolution of this phenomenon. The really difficult aspect here is we have very, very few longitudinal studies. Two by our group, also led by Michael Kess, investigating kind of the longitudinal association of pain sensitivity and the engagement of, in self-injury in adolescence. Importantly, we can only follow up on individuals who engage in self-injurious behavior. We have no longitudinal data of subjects and their pain sensitivity that don't engage in self-injury and then start to engage in self-injury, right? So that's the paradoxon of psychiatric research. We don't have longitudinal data, in this case, surrounding the first incident of NSSI. We have some ideas, but they are more speculative than I wish right? Because of the absence of evidence. There are cross-sectional studies comparing individuals who stopped engaging in self injurious behavior against those who maintain the behavior. These studies suggest a normalization of pain sensitivity in individuals once they stop the behavior. So that's hypothesis one. There's a normalization of pain sensitivity once you get, uh, stop the behavior data from our very first true longitudinal study but only in a small sample suggests what we call a window of opportunity hypothesis we were able to see that pain tolerance in these adolescents engaging in self injury even increased over a year that's the time frame we observed and once pain tolerance became too high they stopped the behavior suggesting that when you engage in self injury While it may hurt less, it still hurts a bit. It still hurts a bit, you will maintain the behavior, but once it stops to hurt, you will stop it. Interesting thought. And now we have a very recent study in a way larger sample, and that is currently under review, but I think I can spoil some of the results here on your podcast, so even before the print. In this particular study, longitudinal again over one year, but in a larger sample than our very first study on the subject, we found that a decrease in pain threshold over time was actually associated with reduced SSI. A decreased threshold means, again, normalization and would be in support of this normalization uh, hypothesis. Generally speaking, as we study adolescents, we study subjects with relative brief history of engagement in SSI. And this would speak to the idea of when looking at the other end, so do they have an altered pain sensitivity before engaging in NSI? And this would speak to that idea, right? So they have a short history of engaging in NSSI and, and we already see differences in pain sensitivity. And this somewhat makes sense. Try to imagine the very first incident where you engage in NSSI. So you try the behavior. It's, you're an extreme state of distress and you, you come up with the idea, hey, I'm going to cut myself and see what it does, right? In I think nearly eighty to ninety percent of the people, they would stop the behavior because it's so painful to cut yourself. but then there may be this minority of subjects that don't experience as as painful or who take more advantage out of that situation than disadvantage, and they may continue to engage in the behavior. And what may be the difference? The difference may be the the subjective pain experience. The difference may be the pain sensitivity surrounding this very first incidence of NSSI, but no evidence.
0: That's really interesting. It almost sounds like we need longer longitudinal studies.
1: The uh, difficult thing is really to have a longitudinal study in subjects not engaging in self-injury and then following up on them and hoping in the research sense, hoping that some of them will start to engage in self-injury. And as we can't do that, because we would require really, really large samples, I think what we need is also qualitative research, interviewing people concerning the experience of pain during the very first incidence of NSSI that they can remember.
0: I don't know how I felt physically in a given moment, you know, a year ago or a month ago, in a situation that caused pain, so that could be hard. Right. And that, you know, then also
1: speaks again to the idea of doing this kind of research in adolescence, so like close to the age where people would typically start to engage in the behavior. And this would also then, you know, speak to the idea of early intervention and recruiting subjects before they show this prolonged behavior and a long history of self-injury.
0: I wanted to go back to something you said about the pain threshold where young people in particular who self-injure over time... When it hits a certain threshold where it no longer feels painful, they may stop self-injuring. Right. This I might have some concern as a psychologist and I imagine parents as well, because one, if it hits that threshold and it they no longer experience pain, they might choose a different form of self-injury. So they might go from cutting to burning, for instance, or something that might up the ante for a more intense experience of pain, which cause more problems, of course. But perhaps more problematic, I wonder, is when they stop, what do they do then to cope with their distress? I recall, I want to say it was a 2006 study by Matthew Knock, where in their sample, I haven't seen any studies since then that I can recall, among those who self-injured who did not experience pain, they reported making twice as many suicide attempts as those who did experience pain. So I worry about this habituation to pain and then this threshold where it no longer feels painful. Either they're doing it more severely, where they might accidentally cause such harm that it could result in their death, or they may switch to another more severe form of self-injury, or they may simply, if they've had co-occurring suicidal thoughts, may attempt suicide.
1: Right. As I said, you know, that was a very early study of our group in a very small sample in our more recent findings speak against findings from that earlier study. And yeah, you're right. That's what we see. We see that adolescents engaging in self-induced behavior would replace the behavior by other forms of Regulation that are more socially accepted, but maybe more dangerous, like taking drugs, engaging in other forms of risk behavior and so on. Again, you're right. They may also replace one method of self-injury by a different method uh, once one method isn't, uh, so to speak, enough to achieve the desired effect. I wouldn't put too much away on our findings given the limitations from that small sample and that our more recent study, you know, speaks against that and follows the thought of an idea of normalization of pain sensitivity. I think back then we also discussed these findings in light of the fact that we study adolescents that included in a really structured clinical program. So that's not a... A naturalistic study in that sense that subjects are untreated. So it may be well the case that although their pain tolerance further increased uh, during therapy, they learned different skills. And ultimately, these skills led them to reduce self-injurious behavior. But that may be associated or have been associated with this increase in pain tolerance. So I wouldn't, you know, based on that small study, come to any firm conclusions. I would rely more on our more recent findings, as I said, that are currently under review, that then speak in favor of this idea of normalization. And all of the also treatment studies we know in adults would speak in that favor of the normalization of the pain experience in individuals after successful treatment.
0: If these levels of pain do normalize after stopping self-injury, do we know how long it typically takes to normalize? Is it within weeks or is it months?
1: No, unfortunately not. Uh, Another limitation of this kind of longitudinal research is the number of study site visits, right? So typically, we have follow-up periods of one year, indicating that there's a baseline, then their pain sensitivity gets assessed. And then one year later, we determine clinical outcomes. And again, pain sensitivity is assessed. And we know nothing about these, let's call them micro time courses of individual trajectories within that year. So that's really an opportunity for research.
0: From a clinical perspective, I'm thinking about cases in which I've worked with young people who have successfully stopped self-injuring. And we know that, of course, self-injury itself can change functions people might self injure for different reasons over time or get different things out of it and sometimes multiple functions at once sometimes these young people they will stop self injuring for months and then when they've experienced something really distressing they may self injure again and one of my questions is how did it help you like in what way did it help you this time and many times they say well it didn't and that is in my mind good news and bad news good news is maybe the the pain normalized to where it was really painful and they didn't want to do it and it didn't have any usefulness in regulating their emotion or helping them cope. But at the same time, if it didn't do anything for them, I wonder what their next step might be if they're experiencing suicidal thoughts. I think that's something that kind of comes up in my mind where it's great that it didn't do anything for them, but what other coping do you have in place to make sure that you're going to cope in a healthy way as opposed to something more unhealthy?
1: Yeah, interesting idea. And I, th- I think we're going to later on get into details of what the painful experience really does to them, also in terms of a timescale here, because our recent research suggests that the beneficial effects of self-injury are really, really short, like in timescales of minutes. Mm. And that's an important aspect when it comes to psychoeducating educating people, engaging in the behavior to tell them, hey... This may, you know, feel like a smart idea, but the beneficial effect is really short-lived. And the long-term consequences have to be outweighed against that. But I think that's kind of beyond the lab, and that's kind of interesting, or one aspect we're really interested in, how ecologically valid are these lab-based findings when it comes to everyday self-injury at home in their regular environment? When they self-inflict the pain, it may make a difference compared to when the experimentator inflicts the pain. But let's get into these details a bit later. You know, concluding on that, I think you had Michael Kess on this podcast, right? And yes. he probably talked about our temporal framework concerning the neurobiology of NSSI. And, you know, I think alterations in pain sensitivity are a risk factor to engage in self-induced behavior. And these differences may even last once you stop the behavior but that's not backed up by large amounts of evidence but that's that's my personal feeling i'd say
0: well i'd be happy to hear more what you mean by that
1: you discussed or you said that you were experienced with clients who stopped engaging in the behavior but who would return to the behavior in states of extreme stress right because with the idea hey back then it worked for me and now it may work again And this suggests that even when subjects stop the behavior, they may maintain a relative lower level of pain sensitivity. Because why would you think about engaging in a behavior where you know this will result in physical pain? This will be unpleasant, right? So there may be this underlying risk factor of altered pain sensitivity, and that may exist before you start engaging for the first time in the behavior. And this may even exist once you stop the behavior after a longer period of engaging in the behavior. And this may make you prone to, you know, maybe again engage in the behavior. But we don't know about that for sure. So I think this said, we need to put the idea of normalization of pain sensitivity in perspective.
0: One common assumption that a lot of people have is that people who self-injure like pain. And I know this actually comes in play sometimes when someone may self-injure more severely than intended and go get medical care and their care team may simply not give them analgesics or or something that would help with the pain. Because like, well, if you did this to yourself, you're going to be okay with any painful treatment Mm. that we have to you, which is just inhumane in my mind. You had mentioned there's a difference between pain experience or sensitivity to doing it to oneself versus it happening to oneself. I don't know how many people I've talked to who self-injure cannot tolerate a paper cut or a hangnail. But do people who self-injure actually like pain, or is there a better explanation, like through the pain-offset-relief hypothesis?
1: I think different aspects here that we need to disentangle. Let's first address this pain-offset-relief idea that has been postulated, and there have been many studies out there in brief suggesting that when you inflict pain, and then the painful experience stops. This may be related to a general relief or a feeling of relief. That's the pain offset relief. We all know how good it feels once a painful thing stops, right? I'm not that much in favor of that idea that this, this is the main mechanism behind the behavior or the experience that subjects engaging in self-righteous behavior make. But let's get more into my ideas of what may be going on later on. I think an important aspect that also relates to my criticism of the pain offset relief is people tend to mix the concept of emotional pain with the concept of physical pain. And we know from neuroimaging research that both are distinct constructs and distinct concepts. So physical pain and pain experience or pain processing has an affective component, true, but emotional or affective pain and physical pain are not the same. So the idea to get in relief in one area by relief in the other, I'm not sure. I think there's something, a biological mechanism behind this that deserves more attention. But I'm not necessarily a big fan of the pain offset relief literature. Back to your question, do people or individuals engaging in self-injury like pain? I'm not sure if a majority of subjects would answer this question with yes. I think they like the outcome, at least the immediate outcome of the behavior that they experience. And this may be related to pain, but I don't think they like pain per se. And I don't think they like them to engage in the behavior per se, you know, because they may feel ashamed for engaging the behavior or for the needs to engage in the behavior or for their experience of the urge to engage in self-injury. So I wouldn't say they like pain or self-injury per se, but pain serves for them a purpose and they may like this mechanism. There have been studies, uh, neuroimaging studies, showing that subjects engaging in self-injurious behavior, when they see NSSI-related stimuli within the scanner, they show decreased amygdala activity. And what that tells us is that they are less engaged in seeing these stimuli on an effective level. Again, speaking against the idea of liking, because if you like something, I mean, you're super engaged with that, right? Also on a brain level. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing here is, and that's research from Inga Nietfeld from the Central Institute of Mental Health in Mannheim, and her and Christian Schmal's group, I think they they did the majority of studies really illuminating these neurobiological aspects, underlying self-injury and pain on the brain level. So they did all the cool scanner stuff. And they were able also to show that pain leads to this amygdala deactivation in subjects engaging in self-injury. And when they had the same individuals again in the scanner and inflicted thermal pain, they were no longer able to show this amygdala deactivation following successful treatment with dialectic behavioral therapy. From a brain perspective, it seems that there's an amygdala hyperactivity in these individuals that is not seen towards NSSI stimuli and that can be decreased by experiencing pain. So I wouldn't say they like it, but pain enables them to experience something different. And this experience beyond the usual distress may be something they like. And that's, I think, understandable. And another aspect that our research focusing more on peripheral biological systems has shown is that the experience of pain may stop dissociation also in regards to ingas finding or in support of ingas finding. And it may increase body awareness. So again, pain here serves a function and that is to feel a bit more neurotypical than others. And I think that's something to be liked, not pain per se.
0: I also think about the social rejection and how when we feel socially rejected, it activates the same areas or similar areas in the brain as actual physical pain. And so taking a Tylenol after social rejection might decrease that, the emotional pain.
1: Right. And that's exactly, you know, the literature I talked about. There's good neuroimaging studies comparing social rejection from physical pain, illustrating, yes, commonalities in brain areas being involved, but also distinct differences between the two.
0: Very interesting. If we can delve a little bit deeper into, I guess, the opioids and endorphins. Right. Some people liken engaging in self-injury as a way to release endorphins and improve mood, like we were just talking about, perhaps similar to how working out or exercising might relieve pain or improve mood through the endogenous opioid system. And for listeners, endogenous meaning naturally originating within the person as opposed to maybe ingesting opioids or prescription medications. Dr. Koenig, what is the relationship between self-injury and endogenous opioid levels in the body?
1: I'm happy to address this, but remind me that we have to talk about the HPA axis and the autonomic nervous system after that, okay? The opioid system, obviously endogenous opioids are involved in the subjective experience and modulation of the painful experience. We did the first study on this in adolescence, uh, using blood draws to assess levels of plasma beta endorphin. So one of the endogenous opioids. And in that particular study, we were able to show that subjects engaging in non-suicidal self-injury in this case, show lower levels of resting plasma beta endorphin. And these were unrelated to pain sensitivity. And this might sound counterintuitive at first place. In this particular study, we showed reduced levels of beta-endorphins at rest in individuals engaging in NSSI, but we found this reduction in beta-endorphins to be associated with higher depression severity. There are currently a number of ongoing studies not assessing beta-endorphin at rest, but as a measure of reactivity towards pain in studies using ecological momentary assessment, and I'm going into those in a minute. But the reduced level of endogenous opioids might sound counterintuitive, because if you have reduced levels of opioids, why are you less sensitive to pain? The idea behind that is termed the opioid deficiency model. So lower levels of endogenous opioids potentially increasing the sensitivity for the analgesic effects Of opioid release. So if you have lower levels of, let's say, beta-endorphin, a little release of beta-endorphin may have tremendous analgesic effects in comparison. And that's why it's so important beyond studies investigating differences in, let's say, resting levels of endogenous opioids. That's why it's so important to have studies investigating the release of opioids towards painful stimuli in subjects engaging in self-injury. And that's not trivial from a methodological perspective. In the lab, that would mean you have to have continuous blood draws, one before pain induction, one then during painful experience, and one later on. But recent methodological advances allow for the assessment of saliva beta-endorphin so it can be used in ecological momentary assessment studies, so where subjects engaging in self-injurious behavior take these little cotton swaps and they would chew on them before engaging in self-injury and after engaging in self-injury. And one of these studies, uh, and there are some currently ongoing, uh, again by colleagues from the Central Institute of Mental Health in Mannheim, has recently been published illustrating exactly this effect suggesting that acts of self-injury could be associated with a momentary increase in endogenous opioids and therefore reinforce the behavior.
0: Very interesting. And I like the idea of using cotton swabs versus drawing blood because then that would really convolute the study because you're introducing a new form of pain by poking someone with a needle and drawing blood multiple times.
1: Right, and, and that's an interesting aspect, right? So we experienced this also in uh, many of our subjects. They would engage in severe self-injurious behavior. So we're talking about hundreds of acts ex- of self-injury per year, but they would refuse a blood flow at the lab.
0: Yeah. Well, you had mentioned the importance of returning back to the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, the, the HPA axis that we did talk about a few months ago in our episode with Dr. Michael Kess, but you wanted to make sure we kind of bring this and tie it in together with that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's part of the 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 trouble you get into when you have such a close collaborator, right? Like Michael, and he's been my supervisor for years. And when you do so many studies together, you need to distinguish the uh, own research profile there. But I'm, I'm not sure how much you got into detail with Michael because I think that's really one of, um, I mean, it's, it's our theory, but I think one of the most convincing ideas currently out there, addressing the involvement of the endogenous stress response system. So the autonomic nervous system and, as you said, the HBA axis. What Michael's research had shown beforehand is that individuals engaging in self injury show an altered stress response. So they show a lower release of cortisol. And also concerning the autonomic nervous system, they show a different response when looking at outcomes like heart rate or heart ability or even electrodermal activity. And what our joint research then had shown is that towards painful stimuli, the picture is different. Subjects engaging in self-injury show an increased cortisol response towards pain and also show heightened autonomic arousal following pain. You know, suggesting that these differences may not only be a mechanism underlying improved body awareness and stop dissociative experiences in the moment of experiencing pain but may also explain that engaging in self-injurious behavior is a way or for the means of helping a biological system that is inefficient towards stress So if you can't get the cortisol release during a stressful situation, engaging in pain may produce the cortisol release that you need to cope with that situation. And I think that idea of having deficient biological stress response system that is then adequately triggered by pain is really interesting in understanding the behavior on a biological level and also taking away a lot of the blame from individuals engaging in behavior but showing, hey, you know, they have deficient stress response systems and pain may be just the stimulus they need to trigger these systems to get the same biological support we as neurotypical individuals get without the experience of pain.
0: That's a great summary. And I'm also wondering, we didn't get into this with Dr. Kess, but what originates or what causes a deficient stress response system to begin with, whether it's adverse childhood experiences. And so over time, they're just too stressed that they become, I guess, attenuated, just less sensitive. And so you need something more over time to kick it into gear to feel something. You mentioned end dissociation. And so maybe pain is something that would get that cortisol response that other people might otherwise get through regular coping strategies or ones that don't cause pain or one that doesn't cause self-injury.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we need a whole nother episode of the podcast to get into this. But yeah, in fact, we have shown that this mechanism that I just illustrated differs as a function of childhood trauma. Yeah, so that is an important aspect. Like early experiences, that would then, let's say, program the stress response system in a way that is not sufficient to cope with stressful experiences or that there are sensitive periods during early development. Particular experiences during these times may overstrain the capacities of these systems, leading them to be inefficient in later developmental stages and then triggering this whole cascade of engaging in self-injury.
0: Now, this may be changing the topic too much, but we referenced it a little bit earlier. What is the relationship between pain and emotion regulation in the moments before, during, and after self-injuring? Because I know you mentioned the cotton swabs, so I don't know if we have more information from that study or those studies.
1: I think that's, that's a great place to talk about differences between lab-based and really studies conducted in the field, so ecological momentary assessment studies. So from lab-based studies, and that's something we've believed in for years, we know that experimentally induced pain will reduce negative effects. So people will be stressed out before we, we induce pain, they will rate high negative effect, then we would put their hands in the cold water or, you know, put on the thermal plate or whatsoever. And then after the nociceptive experience, they will report reduced levels of the negative effect. And that has been shown in many, many lab-based studies. And we conducted ecological momentary assessment studies where subjects would rate their negative effect on an hourly basis and would also rate whether they engaged in self-injury in the past hour or not, and their urge to engage in self-injury and so on and so on. So really ecologically valid design. And the couple of Takeaways from these studies, yeah, we see that before self-injury, negative effect increases and that triggers an urge to engage in self-injury. But the hour after engagement in self-injury, negative effect is further increased. So based on that evidence, we know that the reduction in negative effect, so the positive benefit people think they take from engaging in self-injury Well, the maximum lasts 59 minutes. So it's really short-lived and potentially is even shorter because in the lab, what we do is we assess it immediately after the pain stimulus stops. So 30 seconds, a minute, or so on. But there seems to be a cascade later on triggering even increases in negative effect, maybe related to feelings of shame or, or whatsoever. We don't know, but what we know for sure is hey, the beneficial effect you think you take from engaging in the behavior is short-lived.
0: That's a powerful key takeaway, I think. When I ask young people, how long did it help? I'm curious to know, I mean, they're doing this for a reason, typically to help right. regulate emotions or relieve stress or to cope with stress. And so I acknowledge that as like, yeah, so how long did it help? How long were you feeling better or relieved? Right. On average, I would say the response is 10 to 15 minutes. So something in that 10 to 15 minutes is worth that relief or that temporary relief, even though it's so interesting. You're saying that within the next hour, it actually worsens than it was prior to the self-injury at least the negative emotions the unpleasant emotions that's an interesting finding
1: and put in this perspective self-injury is quite inefficient to alter effect i mean think about other ways to alter your affective state think about drugs at least you get the longer change in effect right you may get the bounce back the other day or so on but at least you get the longer relief I, I, i'm not saying you know go out there and take drugs <laughs> No. But for reasons of comparison, self-injury seems really inefficient for that reason to change that effect. But, but again, you know, we have, we're talking about states of really intense distress. And in these states, you know, it may be the only thing getting through. And then the relief for a couple of minutes may be experienced as worthwhile for the individual. But I think we need to educate them that there are these bounce back effects and that Effects are, you know, only short lived. And from a research perspective, we really need to get down to that time scale, investigating how long it lasts, what are individual differences in that time scale and so on.
0: Because it does have an immediate effect, right. whether it's because of pain or whatever reason it improves the mood, the emotions, it's, it's coping and it's immediate reinforcement. Whereas when we're talking about building healthy coping strategies, such as through journaling, man, that takes a long time to formulate one's thoughts, identify them and then write them on paper or type them on a computer or in the notes in the phone exercising but self-injuring if we're honest yeah it has the immediate effects of course short term they're short-lived but for some people that's what they're looking for they just need some sort of relief so i wonder if we can help them learn how to alter that by engaging in these other coping strategies that won't work as fast but in the end will help them in the long term in the future
1: yeah and even if only pain is capable to achieve this i'd say abrupt stop of flow, whatever is going on currently, you just want an immediate and drastic change of the state, right? That's what you try to achieve. And if only pain is capable to do that, let's think about ways of inducing pain without the risk associated with the methods, subjects, Engage in. So we've been back then thinking about devices inducing electric pain, right? That's something you can really well control and it's not leading to tissue damage and so on and so on. You can, you can set maximum threshold and so on. And this might help then. So let's, let's think
0: about this. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's something we haven't really talked or I haven't really talked much about or seen much in the research because I think that brings up my next question as we get closer to the end today. The ethical issues of doing research. uh, Well, obviously, there's the practical issues, but also the ethical issues of doing research on self-injury pain. Because after all, we can't hook someone up to a machine and ask them to self-injure while we measure neurological changes in their brain. So this would be ethically obviously problematic for so many (laughs) reasons. What are some of these ethical issues? And maybe you can even walk through some of the very experiments that you might use or researchers might use to induce pain. You mentioned a few, thermal, mechanical, and another one.
1: Yeah. So I think first off, what is really beneficial to that research field is, you know, that there's a long tradition of experimental pain research. They were kind of paving the way for research in psychiatry using these methods in our samples and our subjects. There are good protocols that have been published. There are good ethical guidelines also for your local IRB to read up on. So there's good resources to conduct experimental pain research in individuals engaging in self-interest labor. That's kind of on the positive side. We are working with underage subjects, and that makes it somewhat problematic, right? So we had many, many hearings with local IRBs, to explain to them why it's important, what is the benefit of the research we want to do. And yeah, these were tough discussions, but we never ran into issues that were kind of not solvable. So what we typically do is we put certain safety measures in place. For example, when working with heat pain, when we have a heat plate, for example, in our most recent studies, we would set a maximum temperature that the heat plate would rise to or a maximum time of exposition to the heat pain in minutes. And the principal idea is here to avoid any tissue damage, because that seems to be kind of the natural barrier for your local IAB to say, hey, that's okay, that's not okay. But even that, people inventing new specific pain stimuli Like again, the the group at the Z.E. Mannheim using the blade stimulus, that would cause incision-like pain and, and there are small marks that remain. You're not causing tissue damage, but you are causing small marks. So I think tissue damage is the natural barrier when it comes to ethical issues, but beyond that, pretty much everything has been done. As we discussed earlier, the ecological validity between self-inflicted versus other inflicted pain is really an ethical aspect that also compromises our research findings. Because we know from experimental pain research that there are huge effects of the experimenter. So what gender has the experimenter? What gender has the subjects? So this will cause differences in your measures of interest, like pain sensitivity. But beyond these ethical aspects that I think are all manageable, and there are protocols out there by different groups that you can always rely on and say, hey, see, they have done this, why can't I do this, So, et cetera, et cetera. The hurdles are really methodological hurdles or difficulties. For example, while we discuss pain sensitivity, we haven't disentangled different mechanisms or we use a model of self injurious behavior that's probably not true. We only talk about pain, but there have been studies, again, by the ZE group, illustrate that seeing blood during acts of self-injury drives a large amount of the effects. Also in the lab, so they used artificial blood and had two conditions, pain without seeing blood, pain with seeing blood, and they found differences. So there seems to be something else surrounding the behavior that we need to take into account. And then on a very basic level, we know that pain sensitivity as I said before, shows huge inter, but also intra-individual differences. So there are many compounds to be taken into account beyond sex and age. You may think about that pain sensitivity varies across the menstrual cycle in females. So how does this play out in individuals engaging in self injurious behavior? We know that medication intake has a huge impact on pain sensitivity. We know that there are time of day differences. So you may experience pain differently in the morning versus the evening. And how does this play into the fact that most self injurious behavior is conducted during the evening or later times at night? So many, many open questions. I wouldn't say the ethical aspects are the largest ethical aspects are, I think, secondary and all solvable. And technically, everything you can imagine has been done before. But we really need to solve these methodological aspects that come down to the question of ecological validity, and that what we measure is actually what we're interested in. And maybe we're going to talk about some of the future stuff that we're interested in later on, so I can illustrate what are the most pressing open questions that we currently have.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to hear just a couple thoughts in response to your comments related to ecological momentary assessment. For listeners not familiar with that, we actually did an episode with Dr. Glenn Keekins in season one. So if you want to listen to that to get an understanding of what we mean by ecological momentary assessment, you can listen to that. And then thinking about how inflicting injury upon oneself versus having someone else inflict injury upon oneself unwanted. Yeah, I imagine there's some methodological issues or trickiness with doing these experiments because the person themselves are not inflicting the pain. It's almost like we can't tickle ourselves. When we experience tickling, it's because someone else is tickling. And I wonder if it's like the opposite here where when it comes to self-injury, right. it's not that other people can do it unless it's an intentional. Because I, I know I've heard young people in particular who might injure each other Also, your comment about seeing blood in those cases, I think that could resolve some of the issues because there's the sham blade, the fake blade that would induce the red marks, in these cases, experiments with blood. I do want to do an episode at some point on the role of blood and self-injury. And I actually have some ethical concerns doing a, an actual podcast episode on that because I don't want to, it sounds kind of perhaps a little bit morbid. I don't want to give too much attention to it, but there is a role and I don't want to necessarily dismiss that either. So I have to be cautious in how to present that in a podcast format should we choose to do that. Right. Um, do you think some of these results or any of these results apply to adults as well? Because I know you've referenced a lot, you know, working with young people. Do we have studies showing similar results with adults?
1: Yeah, so a particular study I mentioned on seeing blood has been done in adults, right? And in all of the, the the studies that have been done by the ZE group that started off early on doing really well-designed experimental studies on pain have been done in adults with borderline personality disorder. So we were interested to see whether they replicate in adolescents, right? Because that would then provide some confidence that there are some underlying biological traits, so to say, or risk factors that would constitute the start of the engagement of self just behavior. However, we have this aspect of a longer history of illness and comorbid psychopathology, like in the case of borderline personality disorder. So we need to distinguish these groups. And as I said, very early on, there are differences also in pain sensitivity comparing individuals with borderline personality disorder compared to individuals engaging in NSSI only. So, so we need to always keep in mind that there is an additional effect of psychopathology, whether it be depression or personality disorders, that we need to disentangle from the behavior itself, if possible. Yeah.
0: Well, what's next for you? What are some of the other areas of research that we still need to do that you were alluding to just a minute ago?
1: Currently, that's really one thing I'm excited about, and and I think Michael is also excited about it. We're currently wrapping up a big study where for the first time we tested our idea of triggering stress response systems via pain in one study. So, you know, previously we assessed HPA and ANS responses to stress in studies. And then we addressed HPA and NS responses to pain in other studies. And now we combine that. So we are stressing subjects. And then in a randomized control design, we are inducing pain or not, and seeing how they recover from the stress. So I think that study is going to be huge concerning its implications on our idea of triggering stress response systems in NSSI. And another study we are currently doing the data analysis on is really looking into these chronobiological aspects. So the patterns of diurnal variation in biological systems related to NSSI, the urge to engage in the behavior and changes or differences in momentary effects. So let's stop seeing these individuals and conducting clinical interviews and questionnaires asking how have you felt in the past four weeks or past year but let's get down to this micro timing aspects looking really from the moment to moment basis how do biological systems influence their experience and how may that then be related to the urge to engage in the behavior
0: Very interesting work. Fascinating methodology and research designs that you have to think about as far as inducing pain without causing tissue damage and getting ethical approval to do that and people willing to participate. I think that's also an interesting aspect. And before I ask my final question, I'm thinking about those sham blades and inducing that sensation of blood. And I remember at ICCS back in 2014 in Chicago, someone had presented one of those. And I think from a harm reduction standpoint, it's useful for some individuals where they can use such an implement without causing any tissue damage, but it induces a sense of pain and leaves maybe a red mark. On the other hand, I think from a clinical perspective, I worry that they would get accustomed to using that and have to press harder and harder. And so when they don't have that to use and they actually do use it a more dangerous implement, they could cause significant damage because they've accustomed to pressing Mm -hmm. so hard using a real blade and that could be potentially life-threatening. So I actually have tried using one of those just to see the effect and how that might be. And I remember having to press pretty hard to get a sense of pain and to create that red mark. So I worry for people that might use that and then get accustomed to it and then not have it accessible. And then they shift to an actual blade.
1: Yeah, I got you. But, but that may you know also relate to a different generation of these devices. So by design, new devices that we obviously not use in the clinical setting, but for experimental research. They have a cylinder design where it doesn't matter how how hard you press, but there would be a weight within the cylinder that would determine the pressure applied on the actual blade. And, you know, if you press too hard, the, the blade would just disappear in that top cylinder and would not hurt anymore. So I think there have been since back then some advances to that technology from my understanding.
0: It would make sense. That's, yeah, that's been a decade, you know, just about, right. that's an ethical clinical dilemma that I had faced and have faced and have to keep in mind because I don't want to necessarily bring too much attention to those during this podcast either, you know, especially if they're, they could cause harm. So I had to be responsible with that. Well, bringing everything together based on our conversation today about the psychology of self-injury pain, what would you recommend to parents?
1: I think my take home really for parents beyond that, that has been probably said by all the other great colleagues you had in your podcast is try to keep calm and and try to understand the biological needs for the behavior. I think that's what I can add, illustrating that there's biological need for the behavior and, and try to help your kid, your relative whatsoever, providing support and finding other ways helping to overcome this biological need. As I said, you know, triggering these systems to cope with stressful experiences and so on.
0: Yeah, that's a unique addition as a recommendation considering the biological need for the self-injury or the pain in some, of course, not all. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether other researchers or clinicians?
1: I think the most important take-home is really try to catch up on this rapidly developing field of research. I mean, on a weekly basis, we have new studies and new evidence out there. There are different groups that try to do their best, writing good review articles or clinical guidelines, summarizing these findings, but try to stay up to date to provide your patients with the best support possible based on the really fast developing field of research. And for researchers, I would encourage those to engage in the uh, big data sharing initiatives that are currently underway, right? So I think. Also, we as a field of researchers in NSSI realize conducting all these small-scale studies doesn't, you know, get us anywhere. We need to join forces and merge data and share data to come up with larger samples addressing, for example, questions of individual differences beyond group effects that we've now shown for years and years and years.
0: Great points. Would you be willing to share some of those articles that you think would be helpful for clinicians to read and review? And I can link link them in the episode notes.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Thank you. And finally, based on our conversation today about the psychology of self-injury pain, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury?
1: I don't know if I'm in the position to recommend anything, but I just hope they feel seen and understood. And I hope that the, let's say, extreme biological perspective that I take on the matter helps them to get rid of some of the shame and and the bad feelings that society puts on them. I think that's what biological psychiatry really can do, is although these phenomena cannot be understood fully from a biological perspective, Adding this biological perspective may help to be in the position where you engage in the behavior.
0: Super important work that you're doing whenever I look up papers on self-injury pain your name is always there now it's constantly is coming up so you're doing some great work thank you for doing all that work and thanks for taking time out of your day to share with us about your work and really the psychology of self-injury pain
1: thanks so much for inviting me and being such a great host I'm happy to return whenever you have time
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Wester's. For all things self-injury, follow I Triple S on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.